You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy, with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Watt Watchers, providing super smart devices to monitor and manage energy use, and SolarAy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. Hello and welcome to this episode of Energy Insiders. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is David Leach, ITK analyst. How are you, David? I'm well, thanks, Giles. And good day to you and good day to our listeners. And I trust everyone's well. And we've got not one, but two special guests this week. Yeah, slight change of format. I went to the Australian Energy Storage Conference in Adelaide and um, got very busy. So we've got interviews with Dan Van Holst Pelican, who's the new Liberal South Australia Energy Minister, and um, he's got some interesting things to say. And we've also got an interview with Simon Hackett from Redflow, the uh, zinc bromine flow battery. But um, look, before we get on to that, I thought we might just run through a couple of the things that we've had over the last week, David. Um it seems to me to be the week of very big announcements. And if you're going to get coverage anywhere, um, you've got to have at least one gigawatt of something or other. Um, started off with Sanjeev Gupta, who was at the same conference and one of the keynote speakers. He talked about not just one gigawatt of solar and storage for South Australia, but 10 gigawatts of solar possibly across the country, talking about the future of manufacturing of cheap power. And we also had UPC bringing in a Philippine investor to advance, potentially advance its um, Robbins Island and Jim Plain wind project in um, Tasmania and a 600 megawatt plus wind project, um, no, sorry, solar project in New South Wales. And right next were, to my hometown. Well, there you go. And and, and um, pretty close to Barnaby Joyce, I too think. And just to cheer Barnaby up even further, um, CWP have also announced a uh, major partnership with, um, or an extra partnership with Partners Group for 1,300 of wind, solar and storage, which I think they'd rather like to fill in at least part of the gap being created by um, the closure of Liddell in 2022. What do you make of it all, David? Well, then we've had uh, some NEO announcements as well of approvals. Uh, What I make of it, Giles, is that there's an awful lot of... um, uh, positioning, you know, talk is cheap, frankly, and I the talk I take more seriously is from the likes of CWP and Neo and who've actually already been on the ground and building things. And when they say they're going to do something, then I, I give it a lot more weight. But you still can't really put it in the books until they actually do do it. Yes, that's right. They're just going to shovel out and, um, and, and start digging. It's interesting, though. We're at an interesting point in time, aren't we? Because the renewable energy target has effectively been met. So as you say, people are talking and they're positioning because they want to be front and centre of whatever happens next. Now, whether that's the Victorian target, whether that's something that may or may not be inspired by the National Energy Guarantee, if that's what the policy policy works out to be, or just simply replacing coal-fired power stations which close. Um, It's all about positioning, I think, now, isn't it? Well, Well, it is. I mean, you're right to point out that the scale of projects is increasing and that reduces cost. And we're also seeing most of the um, large projects, or a lot of them, including a wind and solar uh, component and some storage. Now, this was the Roger Price's Wind Lab uh, was the first to demonstrate the practicality of this. And it's clearly, I think, taking advantage of the connection agreements. 
to try and uh, reduce the unit costs of doing all of these things. So connection agreements are a bit of a, a scarce thing in the wood at the moment. Uh, um, but you know, it is in contrast. There are those. There are some pessimists about renewable development over the next uh, two or three years. Uh, again, Tristan was pointing out that rooftop solar is going to slow down, which I or behind the meter, which I think is is, is quite likely. And uh, we've seen uh, Bloomberg New Energy Finance also talking about a slowdown over the next few years. Uh, and you can put that against all of these announcements, and you have to make your own mind up. Indeed, indeed. And just to point out, that would be Tristan Edis from Green Energy Markets who came out with a report last week. Um, just one thing just to mention about CWP. Um, the one thing they are actually building is Crudine Ridge. So as part of that deal, 135 megawatt wind farm south of Mudgee. And just to point out that the Clean Energy Finance Corporation is lending money along with Westpac and Sumitomo. And it's the 10th wind farm um, being supported by Clean Energy Finance Corporation. And one other little tidbit from that is that um, CWP basically saying that the debt finance people, otherwise those three banks, were attributing zero value to the price of LGCs for the life of the uh, wind project. So um, I'm not too sure whether that's significant, David. No, well, I think in, um, there's no doubt the LGCs are going to fall away to a very low price. But the thing is, they're going to be replaced by demand that's sourced from the RET or just flat out demand that's sourced from things like the closure of Liddell. Uh, really what you're betting on, I think, going forward now is electricity prices and you're betting on companies sticking to their words and closing these coal-fired power stations, uh, particularly in New South Wales, but I think Gladstone in Queensland and um, even in Victoria your uh, um, lawn is getting towards the end of its life. So we'll have to watch and see. But let, let's talk a little bit about our favourite topic in on South Australia, you know, one of the smallest electricity markets in the world. But that, that, uh, if, if, if talk was the, was the main measure, this thing would be one of the most important mar markets. Yeah, well, look, let's have a listen to um, the minister there. Look, I actually did catch up with him. Unfortunately, I didn't get as much time as I would have liked. So it's not particularly long. Um, but everyone's been really interested to see what the new Liberal government makes of their energy policy. Um, so let's have a listen now to the South Australian Energy Minister. I'm joined by uh, new South Australian Energy Minister Dan Van Holst Pelican. Um, Dan, thanks for joining us. And did I get the pronunciation right? You did, Giles. Thank you very much. Look, um, you've um, had a varied career um, in, in your past, um, uh, doing um, outback roadhouses um, road and um, a professional basketballer for four years. Um, all good preparation for this job as an energy minister because it's a fascinating time to be an energy minister. Well, look, it's, it's an outstanding time to be an energy minister, um, largely because there are enormous challenges, particularly for South Australia, which must be addressed and will be addressed. And, and yes, a very varied background. I mean, I, I think that I can connect with the priorities of consumers, whether they be very, very small households or large employers. Um, and I think I also have some insight into uh, the the energy industry now never enough, uh, but you know my background lends itself to that a bit as well. well. One of the assumptions that was made, or one of the fears that might have been made with the change of government, was that the clean energy transition was going to slow down in South Australia, and it might be a bit of impediment to new renewable projects and, and possibly storage. Um, you've just given a speech here in um, at the Adelaide Convention Centre, suggesting that it's not going to slow down. You, you're not going to have targets. You, you don't believe in targets, but uh, as far as you're concerned, the clean energy transition is forging ahead. Yes, well, look, Giles, very unfortunately, uh, that fear was peddled 
by the former government. Uh, they did their best to tell everybody that if the government changed, that renewable um, you know, energy and clean energy development would slow down. And that was never the case. Uh, and I'm very pleased that the people of South Australia saw through that. Uh, we are unashamedly uh, going to take the very best of what the former government had to offer in this space. We're going to reject uh, the, the mistakes that they made and we're going to improve on what they, they had to offer. Uh, this is not a, a party political area of work in my mind. This is about uh, delivering for the electricity consumers of South Australia, whether they be the small households, the very, very large employers, making sure that they have affordable and reliable electricity and very importantly, making sure that it's done with regard to, to the environment and making the energy generation uh, and in fact the consumption as well with regard to a focus on, on demand management as clean and green as possible. We've also heard um, today from Sanjeev Gupta and talking about a plan for at least one gigawatt of large-scale solar in South Australia. This with the other projects that are already in train suggests that the penetration of renewables in, in South Australia is going to reach very high levels. I think AEMO has predicted 75% even before 2025. Um, you're comfortable with that um, level of, uh, of penetration? I mean, I think you even mentioned 100% re renewables happening at some stage. Well, a few things there. Um, we do have very, very high penetration of renewable energy. We are very good in South Australia at making electricity, particularly from wind and sun, and we need to harness that. What uh, the previous government was not good at at all was making that uh, energy reliable so that it could be delivered to consumers in the way that consumers need it. Um, and, and so that is where we see our greatest area of work is, is to continue with the growth in re renewable energy generation, but to make it work for electricity consumers. And that's why this conference today is so important, because storage mm. is, 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 is such a key part of delivering on behalf of consumers, smoothing out prices, smoothing out uh, generation, and it's it, you know it's not rocket science at the at, at the high level. You want to be able to store the overabundant renewable energy that we often have through until consumers actually need to access it. That's a very straightforward, common sense thing. How we go about it, of course, there are there are multiple layers there, but we have very clearly, well in advance of the, the last state election, offered a policy. Uh, which includes uh, household storage, it includes grid-scale storage, and by that I don't just mean batteries, it certainly could include batteries, but it means pumped hydro, it means solar thermal, it means a whole range of, of other things, including hydrogen. Let's talk about solar thermal very briefly and then go to household batteries, because I'm fascinated about that, and if we can just get those two questions. You're in Port, Port Augusta, I'm not too sure whether you live there, but you're certainly your electorate is there. That's right at the heart of the transition here. You've had the coal plant being shut down, you've got uh, large-scale solar and wind being, being built, um, and now you've got the solar reserve solar tower and modern salt storage on its way. Where are we with that? When are we going to get a final decision and, and, and go ahead with that? Okay, well a few things there. Yes, the Upper Spencer Gulf and Port Augusta is at the heart of, of that and uh, and I live in a small town called Wilmington just, just on the edge of Port Augusta. So I'm not a minister who's making these decisions in isolation from Adelaide. Mm. Uh, every day I'm, I'm right in the middle of this real world transition uh, away from fossil fuel towards renewable energy. With regard to solar reserves, solar thermal plant in Port Augusta, uh, they have received two enormous benefits from, from government. One, the South Australian government giving them a contract to purchase their electricity, and two, uh, significant financial support from the federal government. What we are waiting on now is to get back from Solar Reserve, essentially, that they're ready to go. Uh, you know, a firm 
proposal with regard to, to design and, and integration and how they'll work. So, so they are trying to, to firm up the rest of their finance. They are working with their, with their contractors and we are waiting every day, looking forward to when they can come back to us and say, we're ready to start. Okay, so no, no impediment with the contract or the government finance? No impediment from, from my perspective. Household battery storage, a um, bit of confusion after the election result about the schemes and the status of various things. You've sought to clarify that today. It does seem though that um, you plan to go ahead with your uh, previously announced 40,000 um, batteries um, with a grant. You do seem to be suggesting that that actually might be linked as, as almost like a virtual power plant because you talked about them acting in concert rather than um, in isolation. And you've got a very open mind it seems about the, the, the Tesla one and going beyond the first two stages. I presume then if the if the first two stages are, um, are successful and um, you can get a third party to come on board? Look, that, that would be the best outcome possible. Mm. Um, we had a very clear commitment to provide uh, subsidy for the delivery of 40,000 new household batteries. Um, of course it was always in our plan to figure out the best way to not only de deliver them to individual households but to make them work together for mm. the greatest benefit for the whole grid. The former government uh, announced a, a program for VPP involving new solar and new household batteries uh, in partnership with Tesla. Uh, we are very happy to continue to deliver those commitments from the former government and then of course it makes perfect sense to consider how our delivery of both of those programs could dovetail in together for the best advantage of consumers. So you could actually have 100,000 um, batteries on the network if um, both those programs went to their full, um, full potential? Yeah, quite possibly. And, and, and why not have that be the goal? Yeah. And Sonnen as well, just very lastly, a question. They're talking about manufacturing plant in Australia. You hope, hopefully that hopeful that they or some other party might set up such facilities in South Australia? Well, look, that would be terrific. Uh, and I've met with Sonnen. I'm very interested in what they have to offer. I mean, first priority is, is consumers, affordable, reliable, green energy to consumers, understanding that along the way, suppliers and businesses who serve those consumers must have a sustainable model, otherwise consumers don't have any security long term. Uh, and then another phase that's very attractive to us, which I did touch on in the speech, is the possibility of, of, of assembly and or manufacture of batteries. Now I think assembly is probably a higher um, likelihood, but the possibility of manufacturing batteries here in South Australia uh, is a very, very sensible target. That's it. That's, that's in our vision. Fantastic. Look, I know you've got to rush, so thank you very much for spending some time with us and look forward to talking to you again sometime down the track. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you to, to you, Giles, and Renew Economy. So that was South Australian Energy Minister Dan Van Holst-Pelican. Um, David, what did you make of that? It seems to me that he's sort of saying, well, um, yes, we're not going to stop this transition. We're going to add a, add a bit of storage in it. Um, I'm not too sure what else he could really say, really. You'll have to pass the Valium. Was I really listening to a Liberal minister? <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, yeah. Look, it was fantastic, Giles. He, he, because it was so consensual, he was saying, we'll steal the best parts of whatever's going on. Uh, and, and it was good. Look, South Australia interests me because, as we've discussed, there are about four uh, pumped hydro projects. Uh, there's the solar thermal project. Uh, there are definitely there is definitely a new gas plant going, getting going ahead, and there is plans for new transmission. The, the trouble with all of these projects, with the save with the new transmission ones, the only one that's different is that there's no. It's you've got a deal most likely with AGL to get any of them built, and and that kind of ruins your economics. It's not that they South Australia doesn't need uh, some firming of its renewable generation. It desperately does. 
But the question is to get it on good terms. Uh, at the moment, what we're looking at, as we said several times, is that uh, like baseload prices are still higher, $20 a megawatt higher, uh, megawatt hour higher in South Australia than they are anywhere else. Yes, well, it's been interesting. I didn't really, really get around to sort of exploring in detail that big question about how do they get the prices down. Um, they still seem very clean on that new transmission link to um, New South Wales. Um, and there's talk um, of having a, um, as you mentioned, um, um, a renewable energy zone sort of up between um, in the northeastern part of South Australia and the western part of New South Wales. So, yes, and, and, they've, got the, and they've got the Gupta construction happening as well. So pretty interesting. Well, well, it is. I, you know, I, I certainly hope one of those pumped hydro stations get up. Uh, the other day, Origin made an announcement about pumped hydro in New South Wales that was uh, clearly a lot cheaper than the Snowy project on the face of it. And, and But we do need to see some go-aheads. I guess the first one will be most likely the Kidston project in Queensland. Uh, we'll have to get uh, Simon Kidston on the show one of these days. That's a mighty fine idea. We'll do that. Look, um, one other thing that um, Van Hols Pelican did say was about battery storage, and there's particular interest in the virtual power plants and what would what would be the fate of the Tesla um, power proposal, which was for fifty thousand homes, free storage, free solar. Um, you pay um, through reduced price of electricity bills. They seem to be open to that. So to continuing with that, they did actually lock in for the first two things, but um, the first two phases, which is 1,100 households. So they are now going to, um, they seem pretty open on taking, as he said, not throwing the baby out of the bath out with the bath water on those things. So they could actually have 100,000 homes with um, some sort of government supported schemes of, um, of batteries. So that's interesting. Every time I hear about the baby going out with the bathwater, I, I think of that old Eric Clapton and Cream song. You know, my, my baby's gone down the plug hole. But anyway, let's keep moving. <laughs> okay. Well, look, on the subject of battery storage, one of um, Australia's probably most prominent um, homegrown battery is the Zinc Bromine Flow battery from Redflow. And um, I caught up with Simon Hackett, who you may remember as the IT entrepreneur who has become the major shareholder of uh, Redflow and for a while was CEO and chairman and has now gone back to the chief technology officer. Let's have a listen to what he says. I'm joined by Simon Hackett, board member and technology evangelist for Redflow. Simon, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure, Giles. <laughs> Simon, tell me what a technology evangelist is and why you're about it. Remind us what Redflow is and why it's different from all the other batteries that we're talking about. Wow. So an evang a technology evangelist evangelizes things, promotes them, right? Um, wants to see more of them in the world. And what Redflow makes, and what I'd like to see more of in the world, is a really nifty thing. We make what we think is the world's smallest zinc bromide hybrid flow battery. Now, what do you do with a zinc bromide hybrid flow battery? Um, it's a battery that stores and retrieves energy, you know, much the same way you might do with a lithium battery. We make one that stores um, 10 kilowatt hours of energy, so similar sort of quantity that you might get out of, say, a Tesla Powerwall. Uh, and Ours is pretty special, flow batteries in general are pretty special, but you don't see them so often because they have to be at our sort of size to be able to be putting in your house or your business or a telecommunications site. Other flow batteries are enormous, ours is not. Now when you buy a flow battery, what do you get? You get a battery with distinct advantages compared to conventional batteries. We all know about those disadvantages, but we almost dissociate them from reality because we think all batteries have those problems and flow batteries don't. What are they? Conventional batteries get flustered when they're hot, their lifetime gets shortened when they run hot, 
they lose output capacity with age, sometimes very severely. Any of us that have owned a mobile phone or a laptop are familiar with that. All lithium batteries are like that. They will ultimately lose capacity the more you use them. So the harder you work them, the faster they wear out. Also, lithium batteries in particular have, have a propensity for a thing called thermal runaway, which means if you throw them in a fire, they go spectacularly bang. Flow batteries don't have any of those disadvantages, it turns out. They can deliver 100% of their energy for 100% of their life. They don't, they're not a fire risk. They like being completely discharged. You can get all of the energy out of them all of the time. So very much an industrial strength battery. Well, yeah, um, so it sounds to me like um, someone talking about solar thermal versus solar PV. Solar, solar thermal can do an awful lot of things that solar PV can't do because it can store energy, mm. it can just tap when you want it. The problem it has been having for the last 10 years and until most recently was that it couldn't compete on price because its services wasn't valued. How are you going with that? Yeah, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing. The, our battery is very well suited to commercial and industrial applications, and I say that because that's the markets in which people understand the concept of total cost of ownership as distinct to sticker price, to acquisition cost. For a sense of scale, our batteries are perhaps 50% more expensive than the equivalent amount of lithium in terms of the sticker price for a certain amount of effective storage. But because they don't lose capacity with age and they last a long time and they won't burn the house or the building down, we have got customers quite happily buying them because they see that return on investment as reasonable. Um, and more and more that's the case. A sweet spot for us, Giles, is actually replacing lead-acid batteries in hot environments, typically with rubbish grids in, um, in Southeast Asia and ASEAN in general. But also we, have, we do that across New Zealand and Australia and, and similar places, places that, that wear out other batteries prematurely. So we're not trying to be all things to all people. We work in particular verticals, but they're quite big verticals. And they're mostly focused around places where you want a marathon runner rather than a sprinter. Mm. The rock star uses we see of lithium, the rock star use of lithium in the Jamestown battery, is that battery not, not, not holding the dike back, right, but being the finger in the dike, doing the rock star thing of stepping in and putting a punchy amount of energy in to stabilize the grid. That is a fantastic use of lithium. But for the other 23.95 hours of the day, you just want a marathon runner to shunt the energy back and forth. <laughs> How big is this market then? I mean, I imagine it would be quite large if, large if you're talking about all of Southeast Asia and the Pacific and Australia and then replacing those lead-acid batteries. Yeah, it is. I mean, the telecommunications market alone is, is enormous. There are millions of telco tower sites across, across the ASEAN region alone. They've all got lead-acid batteries in the bottom of them. And if they're in a temperate environment and the grid is not available or not stable, those batteries typically wear out in, in two or three years. So we've got a 10-year replacement to a two- to three-year proposition, and it's kind of that simple. So tell me a bit, I mean, I, think, I understand that um, your, your role um, as technology evangelist um, is to go out and actually work with these batteries in situ on site um, and see how it's going. So give us some, some right. examples. Right, yeah. I'm, I'm very focused, Giles, on my own passion about, about this sort of technology, which is in making it work in the real world. So I'm the leader of the, the project that led to us building a great battery management system for the battery, something it didn't originally have and something that was a deep barrier to it being easily deployed. Mm. So these days, a cluster of our batteries looks and feels like a lithium pack from the point of view of the rest of the energy system. So now you can drop it in in place of a lithium battery into an overall energy system. It wasn't previously true. So I'm in the driver of that. I continue mm -hmm. to evolve that. Yeah, I spend time on customer sites making integrations work in order to understand them and document them and make them easy for installation 
for installation partners. So I like that sort of thing. I like, I like mm. greasing the wheels. And I spent a year or so actually running the company through some big transitions. Well, you really did, because, yeah. yeah, sorry, because you were uh, chief executive and, uh, and chairman for a while. I was, yeah. And, and, and the other thing I, I was and I still am is actually the largest single investor in the company. So the company's been around since 05, 2005. I got involved, I guess, four years or so now ago. And uh, one of the things I realized was that, that the company had great technology, but it had an integration challenge that I led the process of fixing, but we also ran into some manufacturing challenges. The place we were building our batteries wasn't working out well in Mexico. Mm. Uh, so I led a review process as chief executive officer that led to us transitioning our manufacturing to a new plant that we've just actually just opened and just got into full production. Uh, it'll be in full production next month, it's in production right now uh, in Thailand. And Thailand's the, the geographic centre of where our market is these days. It shortens our supply chains. It all makes a lot more sense to us. Uh, so having achieved those transitions, I've stepped back and I've, I've had the joy of recruiting a, a brilliant chairman and a brilliant new chief executive officer to run the business um, and, and that's what the business now needs is being taken into full commercialisation successfully by experts in that realm while I can concentrate on what, what gets me up in the morning which is actually making sure the underlying technology really sings. And give us an example of um, where some of these batteries have been installed and, um, and what they're using them for. Yeah, right. We use them in all sorts of places, Giles. We, all the way from residential through small to medium commercial industrial telecommunications up to, up to the containerised system in my office. So my office has, has a system that, that in a 20-foot shipping container holds 45 of our batteries, 450 kilowatt hours, half a megawatt hour. Uh, and the appropriate AC power electronics sitting under 100 kilowatts of solar, taking a 60-plus person multi-tenanted office you know, kind of mostly off the grid in terms of its energy needs. Uh, there's two in my house. There's lots of other little house installs around Australia. We've got telecommunications installations in South Africa and New Zealand and, and the odd one here in Australia. Um, really, as, as exemplars, now we've got supply coming. We're intending to sell a lot more of those. Telecommunications for us is a big market. Um, we expect to see a lot more of that. Mm. And we're at, look, we're at the Energy Storage Conference in Adelaide, um, and you guys got a stand here. Give us an update on your view of the future of energy storage. I mean, how quickly is it going to get be adopted, and, and, and where's it going? Well, this industry to me, and this this in this realm, still feels exactly like the starting part of the rollout of internet in Australia. That, that we're at the bottom of a, in a positive sense, the bottom of a very big hill, and we're all going to climb it at great speed. It's one of the things that's deep here is that each of these energy storage technologies that you see here, and it's not just lithium versus flow, it's flywheels, it's micro, it's, it's hydro, it's every possible way to store and retrieve energy. Um, I think we are, over the next 10 years, going to reach a point where every manufacturer that can make a viable product is going to be busy as heck rolling it out because the size of the challenge and the size of the opportunity is global and massive. Like the early days of internet access in Australia, I think it's going to be a long time before, before any of these companies are competing with each other. They'll actually be competing with themselves and with keeping up with demand. That's what I see in five years' time. We're all just going to be running like hell in a positive way, solving the problem. I'm obviously an optimist, but I really see it as being enormously solvable. And, and we as an industrialised society, this is just another lot of cranked up industrialisation. Let's get on with it. Yeah. I've got to ask you about electric vehicles because you were one of the early adopters of electric vehicles right. in Australia and got, got, um, got, got, got a few um, Teslas and possibly other cars as well. Um, the market, the take-up seems to have stalled because it doesn't seem to be very much available at the moment. Um, what's, your, what's, your, what's your take on the electric vehicle market in Australia and, and, and the potential take-up and speed of that? Yeah, EV market's interesting. I, I, I grumble somewhat about, about the Australian political environment around EVs because we remain the only first world country that I can find that has almost no real incentives for EV take-up. So surprise, surprise, we're lagging in it. Mm. 
because th- that, that, those incentives are, are the way you grease the wheel, the way you make the change happen. We will absolutely catch up. We will have a hell of a lot of EVs here, but we will be years later than other markets because our, because our, our, our governments have not had enough vision to see the merits of promoting their mm. take-up. But they're still absolutely happening. And the UK and Europe, you can now buy a plethora of fabulous EVs. I see Jaguar are just on the verge of getting the I-Pace out there. It's getting great reviews. Here in Australia, it's to Tesla's enormous credit that they bothered and that they are out here at all. And that's why you see so many of them here as, as the fraction of the EV market, justifiably. It's a reward for effort. I'm a huge and happy customer of Tesla's vehicles. I think, they, I think electric vehicles are the awesome and appropriate use of lithium. <laughs> Very good. And um, is there anything that we could do magically to suddenly sort of fast, fast charge that market, if you like? Yes, I think you should just do the boring thing politically of looking what's worked for other countries and copy it and then pretend you thought of it. And, and the easy ones here are simply the, what California does, which are tax incentives for owning EVs. So not necessarily direct grants, but actually tax discounts on them that produce the same effect, but in a deferred manner in terms of government spending. The other one that, that I, I know is politically difficult, but it's still, I'm still really surprised it isn't happening, is, is for state governments to, to try very hard to offer their consumers a trade-in deal on their long-term expensive feed-in tariff to turn it into a subsidy to replace, to, to put a battery in. Right, the state governments in Australia, the big problem with feed-in tariffs is they were too bloody successful. So they've got a forward liability in the same sense as the defined benefit super scheme. So why the hell don't you go to a consumer and say, look, I've done the maths. I'm going to pay you fifty thousand bucks over the next ten years. How about I don't? How about I pay you twenty-five thousand dollars right now and you buy a battery? What the hell's wrong with that? So a bit of creativity. It's all it takes. Well, look, I, we, we do shake our head because there's been many studies and many proposals over the last few years to do exactly that, and you've been one of the people who've proposed that, but um, still they balk at, the, um, they balk at it, and um, we're locked in with some of those feed-in tariffs for another 10 years. Yeah, exactly, and the feed-in tariffs are now quite distortive because they actually, produce, they're, they're actually, they actually produce a disincentive for installing storage, and yet but because, because the, a premium feed-in tariff makes the grid into a battery that pays you to use it artificially mm. at the expense of people around you. It's yeah. nutty. It worked, make it go away, trade it in, right? That's what makes sense. We can all see that we've built our last coal-fired power station in this country. We're going to need dispatchable renewables for heaven's sake. You know, find every possible way to stick them in. Interestingly and importantly, at every scale. For a small solar installation, put a small battery in. For a grid-scale one, put a grid-scale battery in, right? You match the sizes up and you just get on with it. And again, look, look, Giles, like EVs, it's going to happen anyway, but the pace at which it happens will be a function of the propensity of governments to realise there's a merit in accelerating it. And that realisation doesn't seem to be dawning in Australia just yet. No, we are still depressingly near the era when politicians walked into Parliament brandishing lumps of coal, you know, as if it was a good thing. Um, Now, to, to their half credit, they kind of figured out it's not, but you need to go past being idiotic through doing nothing to doing something. We're, we're, we're two-thirds of the way down that path. Let's do something now. Almost anything. <laughs> we can but hope. And um, look, like you, I'm a very, um, I get very excited about the technology and a bit despairing of some of the politics around the place. But look, um, here's hoping for the best. And um, Simon, thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure, Giles. So that was Simon Hackett from Redflow. Um, David, interesting stuff. I was particularly interested at the end there, actually, not just about his storage thing. We, we do wish them well um, in the storage. I think it's going to be a competitive marketplace. Um, I'm particularly interested with his point about um, electric vehicles and, um, and some of the incentives that need to be done just to sort of get this show back on the road, as it were. 
Yeah, so we're, we're, we're coming up with the National Electricity Plan or Integrated System Plans, and that's electricity. But of course, in the bigger picture still is that electricity is only 36% of uh, emissions in Australia, and the government has got zero, zip, nada, nothing policy in, on the rest of it. And uh, it just remains a total disappointment. But I don't think we can just blame the federal government, although we, we can certainly blame them. Uh, it's also the fact that state governments have, have done nothing in this area and my, as I've said at least five or six times on the show, city councils, city, the city mayors could really be doing much. The policy that works, Simon pointed to what policies work overseas and the most effective policy it's been shown is free parking. I don't know how many more times I can say it, but when are we going to see some? Well, when are we indeed? Look, I've got to say the ACT has moved a little bit forward on this, but I suppose there hasn't been much um, elsewhere. Um, I think um, up in Byron Bay, they did actually get an electric vehicle and listen leave to be the um, for the parking inspector, but the parking inspector was rather too big and couldn't fit into the car, so they had to get another one. So. Anyway, look, um, they need some lithium-powered surfboards up there. That's what they need. <laughs> oh God, don't! No, no, no! Please protect us! Please protect us! Um, look, um, I just wanted to point out that we, when I was in, um, I was very busy when I was down at the Energy Storage Conference, and Audrey Zieberman had a breakfast following on the release of their summer review, and I did do a quick interview with her as well, which is um, you'll find separately on our website. Um, we did actually post it when that review came out. Any quick thoughts on that review, David, at all? Um, no, I don't have much uh, to add there. No, that's fair enough. Um, they did actually get through summer okay, and I guess we'll, we'll, we'll find out for their plans for next summer and beyond, as you say, with the, the integrated system plan and the details of the National Energy Guarantee. Um, anything else happen the next week? I think next week we've got the, um, not this week, this coming week, but the following week we've got the uh, utilities conference, the networks conference, but I'm not too sure what's um, in the short term. Anything on your radar? I'm going up to visit AGL's uh, gas LNG plant. It's only two petajoules, I think, at Newcastle on Tuesday, so I'd hear a little bit about New South Wales gas. I just noticed that the... Um, uh, US 10-year bond rate, which is a, a very key financing variable for all this renewable energy, has actually come down at 20 bips and is under 3% again, uh, lower than it was a month ago. So I, I find that's encouraging, but of course it could just be a trading movement. Mm, okay. Well, we'll wait with interest you'll report back from that particular visit. Um, David? Thank you very much. And look, I must thank our sponsors, Solaray Energy and What Watches, for their continued and ongoing support. Um, thank our listeners once again, and to thank you as well, David. Ah, yes, and th th thanks, Giles. <laughs> Sorry, I was just thinking about you know electricity remains such a fascinating topic. Did you know? I just calculated this afternoon. It's about three point three percent of G Australia's GDP. Is that right? My God, I wonder what the other ninety-six percent is. Maybe there's a maybe there's an opportunity for another website. Well, well ninety percent of its property, Giles, as we all know. Oh God, I'm going to give up then. I I, I, I fail badly in property, so there you go. Yeah, yeah okay. living up at Byron Bay, what a failure! <laughs> Don't. Thanks, listeners, once again, and thank you, David. Bye bye. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Watt Watchers makers of ultra-smart devices to manage electricity use and costs, accurately monitor and control electrical circuits over the internet in real time. Visit whatwatches.com.au and take control of your energy use. 
Energy Insiders is also sponsored by Solar Ray Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. They're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today.